1: Right now, get 15% off your first order at borough.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at borough.com slash ACAST.
2: Hello and welcome to the Guardian Football Weekly, a special on the life of Pelé, possibly the greatest footballer ever. Certainly feels like the first greatest footballer ever ever. He won the World Cup as a 17-year-old in 1958, scoring twice in the final. He remains the only player to win it three times, including the iconic 1970 team. Everyone can picture that Brazil kit. Everyone can picture that pass to Carlos Alberto. He's possibly the first footballer to become a cultural icon and a global superstar. Although debated, he scored a quite ludicrous number of goals, mainly for Santos in Brazil, literally all over the world in exhibition matches for them. There was also the New York Cosmos years and the life afterwards as a sports minister, the face of all number of advertising campaigns. He wasn't picky. Off the pitch, like many superstars, he led a slightly chaotic life. Perhaps in all those comparisons to Maradona, it seemed like Pelé was the sensible one. But today we don't need to decide if he was the best ever. We just want to learn about and celebrate his life. This is the Guardian Football Weekly. On the panel today, Filippo Clare, thanks so much for coming on.
0: Thank you very much for having me, Max. Feeling honoured to speak about the great man.
2: Sam Kunti, football journalist, author of Brazil 1970, how the greatest team of all time won the World Cup. Hey, Sam, thanks for
3: doing this. Uh, Thank you for having me on. It's a great pleasure.
2: Uh, And Andrew Downey, journalist, author uh, of a number of books, including The Greatest Show on Earth, also about that 1970 team, uh, and also three years into writing a a Pelé biography. Andrew, how are you?
4: Uh, Fine, thank you. Thanks for the invite.
2: And, and you're in Sao Paulo, Andrew, and I suppose the news has been expected for a while. We're recording perhaps a couple of hours after it broke, and it's wall-to-wall coverage on the UK news channels. What's it like over there?
4: Well, it's wall-to-wall coverage here as well. I think the, 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 the big difference, I mean, I think back to Diego Maradona dying, couple of years ago and Mm there was just absolutely incredible scenes where millions of Argentines were on the streets and they were you know throwing themselves at the coffin and then they were at the Casa Rosada the the presidential palace and then they were at the funeral home Uh, I don't think we're going to see anything like that here in Brazil because simply Pele is is a lot older Uh, what he was great in years gone by people don't have that same identification with him today and we've also been expecting his death for for some time he's been poorly for a long time so I think that makes circumstances a little bit different here.
2: You've been out on the street chatting to people as well haven't you?
4: Yeah and and it's quite calm I mean out in Sao Paulo the the week between Christmas and New Year is always quite quiet in Sao Paulo because people are on holiday um, it's normally, you know, as I'm sure you know, it's a chaotic city with loads of traffic and, and loads of noise. But it's it's been quite quiet. I spoke to a few people and, you know, they were, they were, they had been expecting Pele to pass away. Uh, I, I bumped into one guy who, who told me that he remembered seeing Pele as an 11-year-old in 1958 when they were training to go to the World Cup. Uh, and he told me some stories about, you know, what it was like to see him. And, of course, he said, you know. There was a skinny little 17-year-old and nobody knew who he was going to be. Nobody knew he was going to take Brazil to three World Cups and nobody knew he was going to be this fantastic player. But that's that was his memory of Pele back in
2: 58. Hard to overstate his significance to the world of football, Philippe, isn't it? But you said in the WhatsApp group, Rock and roll is Elvis, boxing is Muhammad Ali, football is Pelé.
0: Yeah, uh, I think that's that's my contribution to the evening, really. Uh, (laughs) And I've stolen it. No, but um, I I, I think, obviously, it's generational. Um, I'm obviously uh, a little bit older than than you are, Max. And I remember not seeing Pelé live, but I remember seeing him on on television uh, in the 1970 World Cup. And I remember pretending to be Pelé uh, in the schoolyard. Uh, because if you wanted to be the best, you had to be Belay. And you had uh, also a... The dimension of the man is something which is quite difficult to comprehend, I think, because we're talking about an age, the age in which he became a global superstar. Of course, there's the 1958 uh, World Cup, which for a Frenchman as well is very important because he scored three. You talked about what you know the final, but you scored three in the in the semi-final against France at the age of 17. Absolutely prodigious. Um, but because it's really in the 1960s that it's it starts to the cult of police starts to seep through the whole world because of the incessant touring of Santos. And and people are telling each other stories about. Did you see what he did? Did you see? Apparently, the greatest goal he scored was against Juve, in one of those games. And it, it has never been it hasn't been filmed. It was recreated by I think a cartoonist, uh, and it's basically a kind of Pele doing uh, dribbling past players without the ball ever touching the ground. And uh, yes, I can see Andrew doing (laughs) in the background doing this kind of doing, 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 and then slotting the ball past the keeper. Whether he actually scored a goal like this or not, I don't know. But this is how the the cult of Pelé kind of uh, uh, just spread throughout the world without without television, uh, without um, the internet, obviously, but simply because what people were telling each other after seeing him in the flesh or just reading... Uh, the, uh, uh, the the accounts had been written by by reporters. And so perhaps because of that, the mystique is even greater because we created a fantasy palais in our minds as children, or young men and women. And then when we could finally see him in Glorious Technicolor, which was in 1970, you know what? He was genuinely as good as people said he had always been. And so, yes, for people of my generation and the generation before, and I'm sure some generations after that, um, he is to football what Elvis was to rock and roll. He invented football. It's as simple as that.
2: And that mystique, Sam, you know, it does, it feels like it starts in 58 because that is such an extraordinary achievement as a 17-year-old, isn't it? We, we sort of look at young players now and anyone is, you know, we talk about Jude Belling and go, away, he's just 19. This guy scored two in the World Cup final and it was the first winners not like on home soil or on their own continent. extraordinary achievement.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Extraordinary achievement. And even more so if you think about that, Pelé at the age of 17, being a teenager, and Ando just told that Kate story about a uh, Paulista person who saw that skinny uh, teenager train ahead of the fifty-eight World Cup. When you come to think about it, Pelé actually, when he was called up, for that squad in 58, he sat at a transistor radio in Santos. And when his name was mentioned on the radio, he didn't express any surprise he was genuinely prepared to play the World Cup, and he thought he belonged there. Now, obviously, as you know, he, he only uh, came in um, in the third game against the USSR when Brazil were in need of a win and were in in, in a need um, of of some magic. And together with Carincha and midfield maestro Didi, he, he kind of pulled it off. But that was Pele's dramatic entrance uh, on the world stage, and. I think in that kind of uh, moment, he also became Brazil's ambassador. Um, he became that first uh, icon of Brazil, icon of the game, icon, uh, global superstar. And that's quite remarkable. And I think what Philippe says is, is, is right. We kind of invented this mystique, this person, because all these many years later, a, Scots, a Scotsman, a Belgian, a Frenchman are still talking about Pelé. Even though um, at his peak, which is in the early 60s, as Tostau always says, TV was still not really around. And that was, uh, I think, in a way also makes this all so fascinating.
2: Yeah. And also it makes 1970 so so key because by 70, he's already this superstar. But it's the first time that we... We see it, and we see it. It's the first World Cup in color as well. I don't know if that makes a difference, but with that kit as well, and it, like everything about that final and that pass to Alberto as well. Yeah,
4: it's. I mean, Peli scored. We're told 1,281, thousand one thousand two hundred eighty-one, one thousand two hundred eighty-two, one thousand two hundred eighty-three goals. But only we only have around half of them on tape, and it's it's. I always think that the nineteenth. What we have from 1970, because we because we have that in color uh, and because we have that on tape, it's kind of like having the white album and yet not really knowing about yesterday or Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. You know, there's all this (laughs) like amazing, amazing stuff that went on beforehand. And we only have, you know, the opening bars of it. We don't really have it. we, We we can't really see how brilliant he was at his peak in 62 and 63. When in 62 and 63 he took part in, I think eleven different tournaments, and he won ten of them. And the only one he never won was the Paulista State Championship because Santos had to play some other games with reserves uh, because they had so many games on.
2: Yeah, that Santos story is is mad, right? I was just reading about it. Right in 1962, by the time he gets to 62, Sam. He's he's basically shattered because Santos cash in on Pele by just going everywhere and playing football matches sort of almost every day and like you know traveling overnight and then getting a bus here and playing them and then it's sort of just sort of, we complain about fixture congestion now but this is mad world where Santos are just having their own tournament with everyone.
3: Yeah, Pele was the magic monetary, and don't forget he was the magic monetary by then for Brazil as well. They would take him on friendly tours, crisscrossing Europe. Europe, sometimes playing Asia, Latin America, Africa. So both Santos and uh, Brazil saw Pele actually as as a way of making money. So that's something that's always been in the football industry. Um, And I think Pele dealt actually very well with all of it because he actually never had any time to recover in between matches. So from 1958 until, I think, you know, uh, early 70s, he was basically playing a game every two, three days. And when you come to think of it at such a uh, elite level, that's uh, really demanding. And it's incredible that he kind of um, kept up his level for all those many years. Especially when you think of the
0: type of defending he had to face in those games, uh, which is a little bit more agricultural, perhaps, uh, than, you know, which explains, by the way, even though, you know, he's a three-time World Cup winner, but in 1962, he actually played a game and a half uh, because he got injured. And in 66, of course, he was famously kicked out of the tournament by the Bulgarians uh, and then by the Portuguese. And uh, he, he could otherwise have been a, a four-time World Cup winner. <laughs> and uh, yes, I mean, the, the stamina is absolutely unbelievable as well when you realise that when you watch his, his game was not just about silky dribbles and wonderful touch with both feet, but he was also a very physical player. At the
4: 1970 World Cup, Pele committed 23 fouls more than any <laughs> other player. It's like Ashley Barnes. <laughs> and in the in the uh, I can't remember when I got this stat, but in the 12 World Cup since it's probably 13 now, only five players had committed more fouls in a single tournament, which showed you, you know, how he could give it out when he really needed to defend himself.
2: When I was thinking about his most famous moments, and this may just be my ignorance, I sort of think of that dummy where he puts the ball wide, and the effort from the halfway line that doesn't go in, and the header against Gordon Banks, and the pass to Carlos Alberto. Like, none of his, in my mind, none of his most famous moments are goals. Like, like I don't know if that's just a weird, I don't know that's just a sort of anglicised view of it, but like... Are they his most famous moments? What are the goals that I'm missing? Well, there's a lot of goals that a lot of us are missing
4: because we don't have them. I mean, there's a famous one in Brazil. There's a a famous phrase, a really great goal. You know, a spectacular goal is called a Gol de placa. And a placa means like a plaque. And that comes from a a great goal that Pele scored, I think in 1961 against Fluminense at the Maracana, where he dribbled half the team and scored the goal. And it was so great that people said, you know, we should really put up a plaque to... To, to remember people about this, and then it became, you know, goal de placa, and you know, Philippe talked about the earlier goal against against Juventus, and it's a similar kind of thing. We don't have it on tape, and so there are lots of incredible moments that we don't have. We remember 1970 simply because it was the first time we saw it live, and it was the first time we saw it in color. So we remember these these nearly moments uh, more than we remember some of his goals, and it should also be also be remembered I was with my nephew this morning. We were in the football museum in, in Sao Paulo. And you know he's 14 years old and I was explaining talking to him through through some things. You know, and I and I was saying to him I was saying to him when we saw the Pele trying when he tried to score the goal from halfway line against Czechoslovakia. And I said to him, listen, you've probably seen you know a dozen guys score goals from the halfway line. It's nothing new to him. And I said the reason that this people still talk about this was because we'd never seen yeah. anyone try it before. Yeah. It was, just, it was so
2: original and so, so, just so daring. Uh, you're listening to Guardian Football Weekly, a special celebrating the life of Pele. We'll be back in a minute.
1: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass?" Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at borough.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at borough.com slash ACAST.
2: Welcome to part two of the Guardian Football Weekly. Philippe Neymar's been on social media and he, he said something before Pelé. Ten was just a number. I've read this phrase somewhere at some point in my life, but this sentence, beautiful, is incomplete. I would say before Pelé, football was just a sport. Pelé has changed it all. He turned football into art, into entertainment. He gave voice to the poor, to the blacks, and especially he gave visibility to Brazil. Soccer and Brazil have raised their status thanks to the king. He's gone, but magic remains. Pelé is forever. But that's quite interesting that he sort of defines the number ten as well, which is now such a sort of iconic number. Or do you not necessarily buy that?
0: Which is all slightly odd in my view, because Pelé was not a number ten; he was he could play on all in all positions uh, in attack. And then later on in his life, yes, it's true, he became more of a of a playmaker, and, and it was you know uh, Andrew and 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 Sam could. Talk much better than I can about that because they they are the specialists of of that fabulous 1970, uh, team. But he was um he played at the, as a withdrawn striker. He played as a playmaker. But I, I I don't know. I find it a bit strange actually to equate him with uh, a number ten, which is,
2: well, no, just just the number ten rather than the position. Just like literally the okay,
0: number. Okay. Um... Uh, but the one thing I would say is that there are some things in this statement, which I think if you delve a little bit uh, more deeply in, into his life, are not quite right. Um, he was not um, politically engaged. He was not somebody who defied the establishment. He was not somebody who fought for uh, for civil rights. He was actually very often, actually in, in the eyes of some Brazilians, he was the one who did not speak when he should have spoken. I mean, the relationship in 1970 is particularly interesting because uh, the the government at that time, uh, Medici, uh, was was a well dictatorship. There's no other word for it. And and at no point did he really question that. He 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 went public, I think, much later when he he did this uh, little autobiographical documentary where he said he regretted actually not speaking out, but he admitted that he had he had not done it. Um, and he was also somebody from the establishment in, in many ways. He became a minister, as you said. Um, he was uh, at one point the highest-paid sports person in the world, uh, which, by the way, he deserved, <laughs> given the number of hours he played. He passed on the on the pitch with Santos. He was certainly richly deserves. But so he is also
3: an imbi- he was an ambiguous man, of, uh, out of the pitch. If I can just jump in, I I, I totally agree with what Philippe just said. And I think it's very interesting to notice that dynamic, how loved Pele and adored and admired he is around the world. Um, whereas in Brazil, he's not always seen that favor, favorably. And it's obviously Garincha, at least in the past, who really um, kind of was was the man of the people. So I find that ambiguity in how fans see him uh, around the world um, quite interesting. And uh, it will be interesting to see how Brazilians react now because you won't see that outpouring of love that there was for Maradona, as, as Andrew Downey mentioned. But will Brazilians now come to value their football heritage um, a bit more? Um, I, I would hope so. And secondly, there is a very interesting Quote from João Saldanha, a coach of Brazil in '69, um, who basically said, "I would pay, play Pele as a fullback. I'd play him as a mid defensive midfielder. I'd play him as a goalkeeper." And you know, you know there's a famous, star, a few famous photos of Pele being a goalkeeper um, during training sessions. Um, but one of the qualities, you know, of great players is that they kind of adapt. Um, you know. Um, in the later stages of of their careers. And that's what um, Pelé um, did at the 70 World Cup, exactly. Um, But, you know, Pelé could play everywhere on the pitch, I think.
4: What Philippe said about uh, Pelé and race and Pelé and the dictatorship are are two criticisms that are often levelled against him. Um, I think you have to put what happened or his, his positions in context, and they're both very separate. I think the first one about race is that Pelé always maintained that he what he did was he tried to set an example Uh, he said he he never pretended that he was anything other than a black man he always said i'm a black man he always said my what i'm doing for my race is i am showing the world people all over the world know i am brazilian but they also know that i'm a black man and they know that i've succeeded you know uh, on my own terms and this is an example to people in the third world and people in the third world, particularly in Africa, when Santos went there, they absolutely adored Pele. And I think that is that context is, is, is really vital to the whole question about race, as is the fact that you often we often make the comparison with Muhammad Ali. Um, Muhammad Ali grew up in a time where civil rights in the US were, 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 were going crazy. The, the, you know, uh, African-Americans were, were, def- were demanding their rights. On, on every kind of, in every kind of uh, camp, and every kind of level, uh, Brazilians weren't doing that at that time. So Muhammad Ali, for example, spoke out, but he had guys like Martin Luther King and Bill Russell and Michael Lewis he, and Martin Lewis. He, he, he had all these people who who could serve as an example for him. And Pele didn't really have that. He was a poor unlettered, unschooled guy, and his parents always brought him up to say, you know, keep your head down, serve as an example, and do things properly, and that is an example to show that black people can can do well. And the thing about the dictatorship is also, is also a very valid criticism. Pele didn't speak out against the dictatorship, but neither did very many people, and certainly no footballers did. And I think the criticism that, that you should make about Pele is that,
0: uh, not that he didn't talk about the dictatorship, is that but that he changed his mind about the dictatorship way too late. I suppose, Andrew, that the reason why I'm making those points is because I'm comparing it with the other great export of Brazil and the other thing which has defined Brazil uh, to the world after the Second World War, which is the music. And uh, at the time of Pelé, the time of Palais is also the time of uh, Edu Lobo and uh, the time of uh, Elis Regina, with whom uh, Pelé recorded a couple of lovely tunes, Um, but also uh, Caetano Veloso and uh, Georges Ben and Gilberto Gil, musicians who were very vocal, uh, both for the social reform and against the dictatorship and paid a very heavy price, exactly at the same time as Brazil was winning the World Cup in 1970. So that's why I was talking about this ambiguity, but you're absolutely right, context does matter an awful lot, and it's just to put you know it's it's there's a lot of light and shade. Not not when it comes to the the player was a genius. The player was for me the greatest there's, there's ever been, and in a way in a dimension all of his own that no other player can inhabit. It doesn't matter how good you are. He was playing in in a different. I think it is um is it Pushkas who said that or Di Stefano who said. That uh, there might be uh, greater players, but talking about uh, Pele um, as, as a mere player is wrong. He was something else. And so he's in, in this different, he's' in this different dimension. and but that doesn't mean that he wasn't also a man who had his frailties and his doubts and his ambiguities, and, uh, which I suppose when you know he's just died, and we're all a bit in shock. It's perhaps something that maybe we shouldn't spend too much time talking about, but it's also part of who he was. Uh, All right, that'll
2: do for part two. Back in just a second.
1: Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a US-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware.
2: Welcome to part three of the Guardian Football Weekly. I want to kind of jump ahead. I'm trying to get as much of Pelé's life in as we can. I'll jump ahead to 74 in New York Cosmos, Sam. And this is a sort of extraordinary time for Pele to go to the United States.
3: Yeah, absolutely. But again, one of Pele's big motives throughout his life and and that's also part of his story that perhaps we don't want to overly address in this podcast is his financial insecurity. Um, So one of the main motives to move to the USA and conquer the last frontier of the global game um, was unfortunately uh, financial. But nonetheless obviously it was Quite a moment, Day he arrived at Club 21 in, in Manhattan and he was presented um, to the global media or at least mainly the American media and everything. everyone was shoving and pushing um, to get a glimpse of, of this man, a global star, but perhaps less so um, in the United States. Um, and then the rest, of course, is history, Pele kind of. Um, did conquer um, the United States and football with the New York Cosmos, uh, a sort of, um, you know, Harlem um filling stadiums um, everywhere um, around um, the United States.
0: Uh, one funny thing is that did you know he went to the same language school as John Lennon? No, I didn't know John that. Lennon. Yeah, I, liked yeah John, I think John Lennon, um, John Lennon left, was living in New York at the time. And he was taking uh, Japanese lessons, obviously, because of Yoko. And Pelé was taking English lessons. Um, and I, there is uh, a a segment, uh, I think, in Pelé's autobiography. I mean, I, I never quite know what to make of these autobiographies because, you know, <laughs> they take certain liberties with the truth. But anyway, there's a little uh, gem there. Where um, they apparently had a chat at the at, at the canteen at the school. Can you imagine, Pelé with John Lennon having a chat at the canteen? And uh, yeah, absolutely. And um, and and John Lennon told Pelé uh, said, "Were you aware of the fact that we ne- nearly played for your team in 1966?" And Pele replied, "Yes, I know because I'm the one who asked you to play." And the FA refused to have the Beatles play for the Brazilian team. Come on, wow. such killjoys!
2: Of the FA, that does not surprise me. Um, <laughs> Andrew, his his kind of you know, for for younger listeners, there will be all these you know their their knowledge of sort of Pele is you know maybe they had a video of him being great. Maybe they're even too young for videos, right? And they just know he. <laughs> was sort of this legendary old guy who was a brilliant footballer, but now just advertised everything, sort of possibly everything and anything he possibly could.
4: Pelle grew up like very, very poor, you know? I mean, very, very poor. Um, and he was always kind of, he was always petrified that he was going to lose all his money. And with good reason, because as Sam just said, he lost a lot of money, at least twice. He hired agents who, you know, spent all his money and he got involved in business projects that that ended up, losing him more money than than making him money. And he was always, you know, really worried that the same thing was going to happen to him as had happened to players that he had seen. He remember him talking about once he went into a he was he wanted to buy his mother a, a fridge. And this is not long after he had started. And he went into the, the, the shop to buy the fridge. And the guy who was selling the fridges was a player that Pelle had known as he was a kid. And it always always in his mind that I don't want to be you know, I don't want to be forty or fifty selling fridges, so I, I have to keep making money. <laughs> I have to do this <laughs> properly. And It was another story that he was in. He was in when he was in New York. Even this was this was. He had like a Mustang or something. He had went to the airport, picked somebody up, and when they went back, they never took like the the expressway. He took some other back road, and somebody said, "Why are you taking this back road?" You know, back road and he said well the expressway cost 70 cents on the on the toll <laughs> <laughs> you know and, and, and i've heard a lot of these different stories from different sources and they all kind of amount to the same thing that everyone said you know Pele, he was kind of tight-fisted he was he just looked after his money and was very very worried about it
2: you did mention before we came on air fleet there is this amazing video doing the rounds of uh you know sort of, of basically you know oh yes if you thought Cruyff, you know did the, the Cruyff turn Pele did it first and it just goes through sort of these great footballing moments and Palais has every done every single yeah
0: every single trick in the book uh, you know the elastico Ronaldinho, or the uh, the uh, dead leaf Foyamorta, is that that's right uh, my 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 portuguese is is appalling and um uh, all the uh, the kind of free kick that juninho Pabon pavão buccano uh, or samih used to score well he scored those as well with both feet And um, what we call the sombrero trick uh, in French, which is when you juggle the ball over the head of uh, your opponent. It did that many, many times. And in fact, every single trick in the book is in that video. It's actually quite extraordinary. Um, I mean, as as a work, by the way, as a compilation, it's absolutely phenomenal. And yes, you realize that he was... um, uh, yeah, that's why I say he invented football. Because also for many, I think, for many of the audiences who discovered him when he was touring with Santos, they'd never seen football like this before. Ever. Absolutely never. I mean, there was trickery, there were feints and dribbles, and there were wonderful players, the silky players, you know, the Cinderellas and the Magic Magyars and so forth. But this was not that kind of level because he allied to that the athleticism which is completely new, and which is something which also I think would we, we, we talk to anyone who watches him in 2022, is that he has this mixture of athleticism, skill, not grace, but power, uh, imagination, daring, all of these things he has them, which is a very modern mix, which is why he, he jumps out of the screen sometimes when you watch some of the old games and you look at the players around him. They do look like players from years gone by wonderful players but playing a different kind of football. He seems to have been teleported from our era or even the future into those games and to be playing in a completely different a completely different game, which is another reason why you can say he invented football.
2: Are there you know, if you were to go and watch, I don't know, three Pele games that exist, like what what game what what should we go back and watch to really understand how brilliant this guy
3: was well i would start personally with uh benfica santos from 1962 and that's for the simple reason intercontinental cup um santos win the away leg i think two five and for the simple reason that Pele considers, at least according um to what he uh what's written in the autobiography, he considers that to be his best game ever. Um so there's there's no argument there. I would say Benfica Santo is the first game. Um second game is probably um I would go for Brazil um Uruguay, perhaps. Cause that represents all Brazil Italy, but you know, in with the semi final in 70, you've got the greatest goal that never was. Um, and I think that represents Pelé and Brazil in, in that age at their best because they kind of reduce the spectacle, the competition of World Cup semi-final to its essence, it's simply a game. And obviously by the second half, Brazil had kind of reduced um, Uruguay to bystanders. Um, and then as for the third game, I'll, I'll leave that to Andrew. Oh God, you've put
4: me on the spot Sam. come on. <laughs> 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 oh dear, I don't know. Uh, I don't know. I, I, I'll tell you some, one interesting thing that's Peripherally related is that his first ever game was against Corinthians de Santo André. Uh he came on as a substitute and scored uh, as a 16 year old, I think. Um and then I was I was supposed to go and interview Eginho, his son last week. This week, obviously cancelled. But when I was researching that, Eginho's first first game in goal for Santos was against this same small club on the you know halfway between Sao Paulo in, in Santos uh, as a goalkeeper, But as a, a, a game, I, uh, I, I can't think.
3: Well, I, I well, if we have to be fair, and let's go for the, I don't know, it's a 58 final, a bit cheesy, but that's where you see him as a teenager storming on through the wall stage and he scores two brilliant goals against the, against the Swedish, that lovely volley and then the soaring header. Um, so with those three games, you'd probably see him at... You know, three different stages in his career.
4: I think we should throw this over. We should throw this over to Philippe to to, to complete it with the, the number three.
0: No, no, no. That's it. You've got the hat trick. But one thing I would say, and uh, which we haven't touched upon because we all agreed on that, but it's not something that all people will agree on. Uh, when people discuss the uh, you know the greatness of Pelé, they always say, I mean, you hear that very often. Oh, but he never played in Europe. And which denotes an absolute total ignorance of the state, of, of the powers, of the power of world football in the early 60s. In fact, in the early 60s, what was the best league? The Brazilian league. It was the best league. They all played at home. And, when, and of course, the, uh, the big occasion was the Intercontinental Cup, uh, which, was, which really meant an awful lot, both to European and South American teams. And you look at what Santos did in 62 and 63. Well, they, they won. They won and they won handsomely, and which is why we're so happy that that Sam uh, took the example of the five-two at Benfica. At Benfica, and what a Benfica team! Look at who was in there. You're talking about absolute legends of the Portuguese game, and they actually flattened them. So, the Brazilian championship at that time was the very best there was. That's why he played for them.
4: When people talk about uh, the Brazilian leagues at that time, you know, people—it's the same old. You know, tiresome, all farmers leagues, you know, it was only state championships. You know, they weren't competitive. More teams won the Sao Paulo state championship when Pele played for Santos than have won La Liga when Messi played for Barcelona. So that's how competitive the Sao Paulo state championship was in the 60s and early 70s. What's,
2: um, What's his legacy, Andrew?
4: That's a very good question because I think his legacy is is mixed up, not just in terms of football, it's also mixed up in the question of, of race and what he did and didn't do and it's mixed up in the question of uh, the dictatorship and what he did and didn't do and it's also mixed up in his personal life. There, was, there were some issues in his personal life that really uh, irritated a lot of Brazilians and I think is one of the reasons that he's not quite as loved. He had a daughter that he didn't uh, want to recognise uh, and that really left a bad taste in some people's mouths but I think you know in terms of football you know the fact is we are the fact is that we are still debating him today as either the greatest or you know the second greatest or third greatest which however what you get however much you want to get into or however you want to get into that the fact that we're discussing this guy from the 1960s is one of the greatest players of all time I think tells its own story.
3: Yeah, I I think Andrew was addressed quite well, but for me it's quite simple. He's the greatest player of of all time. And just going back to what Philippe said, kind of a player of a different age, teleported to the 60s and the 70s. I think what what stood out with Pelé is that he kind of conflated two qualities. He was a supreme artist, which Brazil had always had in 58 and 62, but by 70 he had perhaps become also um, the supreme athlete
2: final word for you Philippe. you said you know you shed a tear when you heard the news
0: um no i think i i was uh, i've got a group of, uh, of friends you know whatsapp group of friends where we talk about music and football that's basically all we do and then suddenly we we heard um one of them my friend Stuart, just said i've just heard police died and i, I just i couldn't control myself it's not Fuck, you know, not him, please and um and yes, so that's how much he meant and um I mean, to people as I said again, in my generation and generation before that, and generations after that he he was football, and um so when talk about legacy, i mean what what greater legacy is, is there than that?
2: I think you've summed it up, Philippe, as you always manage to do um listen, thank you so much to all of you for coming on at such short notice. It is impossible to cover his entire career in this short period of time. I'm sure we'll have missed things out, but um, I've learned so much, and hopefully everyone listening has too. Uh, Philippe, thank you as always. Thank you, Max. Thank you, Sam. My pleasure. Uh, thank you, Andrew. Thank, thank you. Football Weekly was produced by Joel Grobe. Our executive producer is Max Anderson. and uh, we'll be back on Monday.
0: This is The Guardian.